so glad that you're here this morning. We rejoice in the baptism of Vaughn and Deborah. Uh, what a good day. You know, what a good day. So Jesus commands us to his disciples to be baptized. That's something that happens one time in the life of a Christian. And so this is, uh, you know, uh, I, I kind of wish sometimes Jesus would allow us to be baptized more than once, you know, just so we can just kind of like Lord's Supper, keep doing it. But what a, what a great gift. What a great gift to be able to rejoice that with you too. And, and also, if you're here this morning in light of this past week's events, uh, and you're troubled by those as well, you should be. I want you to know that as Christians, and you're asking questions about the Christian faith and how God and things like this can happen together. How does that work? And you've come to church maybe looking for answers. First off, know that you're welcome here. Your questions are welcomed in this place. And uh, we're glad that you're here. And if you have any questions more about that, uh, about sort of evil and a good God and how that works. Come find me in the back after the service today. I'd be glad to answer some of those questions for you. But know that the Christian faith has a big place for lament. Uh, we have a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. Uh, and so it's a big part of our faith. We would lament that these things happen. So does God. Uh, if I could give you one passage to read this week as you're working through this, go read Psalm 13 and just watch how uh, a person laments in the face of trouble in a world. Um, let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, we do thank you that you are a God that hears our prayers, that we rejoice at your activity in the life of people. Uh, Lord, we lament at the difficult aspects to this world. And Lord, we lament all the more even as we look back into the history of your people here in just a moment. Uh, Lord, how good it is to know that you are a God that meets us in our troubles and our sorrows and even our disobedience. And leads us home in grace and love and forgiveness. Make us attentive to your word now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. David Wells writes in his book, God on the Wasteland, We have turned to a God that we can use, rather than to a God we must obey. We have turned to a God who will fulfill our needs, rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights to ourselves. He is a God for us. For our satisfaction, not because we learn to think of him this way through Christ, but because we have learned to think of him this way through the marketplace. In the marketplace, everything is for us, for our pleasure, for our satisfaction. And we have come to assume that it must be so in the church as well. And so we transform the God of mercy into a God who is at our mercy. We imagine that he is benign, that he, that he will acquiesce as we toy with his reality and to co-opt him to the promotion of our ventures and careers. Thus do we tighten our grip upon him. And if the sunshine of his benign grace fails to warn us as we expect, warm us as we expect, if he fails to shore prosperity and success on us, we will find ourselves unable to believe in him anymore. Unquote. Well, welcome to our second week of the book of Judges. We're thinking about these kinds of things. Uh, where we saw last week uh, a people, God's people, coming into the land and they half-heartedly obey. Uh, and we will see this week what happens uh, to that generation as a result of their fathers and their mothers half-heartedly obeying. And what we're finding in this book, what we're going to see is we're getting a good picture of what it looks like for a people to reject God as authority and to then live lives uh, in such a way as to do what is right in their own eyes. In other words, to do, to be supreme in self. That's what we're getting a picture on. That's what we're getting a picture on. And the point of the book of Judges, you should know very clearly, is that, is to help us see that the supremacy of self doesn't work. 
that God made us for himself, that he is king and he's a good king and he's given us words that we can follow for life and godliness. This book is going to help us see that we are bad kings and queens and we need one that is a good king. And so here in chapter 2, verse 6 is where we'll start today. We'll go to chapter 3, verse 6. I've entitled the sermon, Abandoning God. Uh, We're going to have four points that will follow right through the grain of the text. But you're going to see, guys, this book right here is a kind of overview of the book of Judges. First point we see this morning is that they did not know the Lord. They did not know the Lord. Take a look at verse 6. This is where we left off last week. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance and to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance of timnath Harris and the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. Now, if you were here last week, maybe some of you are a little confused by this passage because we saw chapter 1, verse 1, that Joshua already died. Uh, And so here we find that same sort of testimony, but... This is not an uncommon aspect of Hebrew literature. Some of you that are familiar with the uh, book of Genesis, you'll remember that's how the book of Genesis starts. It gives us a story of creation in chapter 1, then it goes back into chapter 2 and gives us another story as it relates to creation. And so that's the same kind of thing that's happening here. It's sort of like a a movie maybe you've seen where they give an introduction to the movie for 5 or 10 minutes and then the scene comes up and it says 5 years earlier and it goes back and gives you another introduction. That's sort of what's happening here. As I mentioned, chapter 2, verse 6 to 3, 6 is giving us an overview of the whole book, the message of the book. Uh, It's introducing the themes and the cycles that will repeat themselves throughout our study. It's that kind of 35,000 foot view of the book. So Joshua that we read about there, he was God-ordained leader. He was the leader of God's people, bringing them into the land. Moses had died. He was kind of God's people's first leader. Uh, He's died. Joshua took up the reins. Now he has died. Joshua was a good man, godly man, loved the Lord. As for him and his house, what was he going to do? Serve the Lord, right? And so now we see Joshua has died yet again. And not only that, we get more bad news there in verse 7. The generation that followed those leaders, now they are dead. And so the people that saw the works of the the Lord with their own eyes, now they have died. And we get this shocking assessment of what happens to the next generation as a result. Verse 10, again, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, this is not saying that they did not know about the Lord and they didn't know about what he had done. That word know there in the text, that word know there is meant to communicate intimacy. Maybe some of you are familiar with Genesis 4.1 when it says Adam knew his wife and they had a son. There you go. That kind of knowing. That's what it means there. The generation that followed knew about the Lord, but they didn't have an intimate knowledge of him. In other words, the Lord was a kind of distant relative of sorts. 
For the Americans in the room, he's, maybe he's sort of like a George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. You know, a sort of good figure that was sort of good for the founding of our country, but this kind of distant, abstract, historical footnote that they're not actually close with. That's what's going on here. The author wants us to understand that Israel no longer loved God like a wife would love her husband. He wants us to see that there's now distance in the relationship between God and His people. The people have lost intimacy with their God. And guys, this is where our bad situation goes off the rails. I cannot possibly emphasize this enough. This right here, verse 10, is the root of every single thing that comes afterwards. This is the root of every bad thing that happens afterwards. That's why it's being mentioned first. Every step down the staircase begins right here in verse 10. It begins with not knowing the Lord. Not being intimately familiar with Him and His love. This is the most devastating step of them all. See, these Israelites, they probably knew a lot of things about the Lord. But the text says they didn't know the Lord or His works. Sort of like a husband would know the love and courtship of his wife with specificity and intimacy. God had become a kind of distinct, abstract reality to them. And in the midst of their success, they lost an intimate knowledge of God that brought them there. And as we will see, they go on to be dazzled by other things, by other gods. And so Restoration Church, we too are in danger of this ourselves. We too are in danger of this ourselves. We too are in danger of being a generation that does not know the Lord or the work that He has done because we have become dazzled by other things in the midst of our prosperity and success. It is a historically proven truism that one generation believes the gospel and the next generation assumes the gospel. The third generation confuses the gospel and the fourth generation then abandons the gospel. Now, when I say that, some of you go, yes, Nathan, but I know the Lord. I, I know the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. I know those things to which I respond. Do you? Do you? Do you study Jesus? Do you seek to understand and to know Jesus like you would seek to understand a spouse? Do you try and understand what excites Jesus and what angers Jesus? Do you plead for grace to see Him and enjoy Him? Do you memorize His Word? Recall the promises of Christ? Do you have your life to stand upon the rock-solid promises of the Lord Jesus? Do you talk to Jesus regularly in prayer? Do you listen to Him in prayer? Do you help other people to know the Lord Jesus? Do you gather with His people and know His people in the church? See, friend, the reality is Satan knows more facts intellectually about the Lord Jesus than any of us ever will. He knows those and knows that they're all true. The reality is, though, Satan does not treasure the Lord Jesus. He doesn't treasure Him. So do you treasure the Lord Jesus? Do you treasure Him? Seek to know what Jesus, uh, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. Or do you just know about the Lord and what He has done? See, guys, the difference between those two things is the difference between knowing that honey is sweet and tasting it and knowing that it's sweet. 
Huge difference. God calls us to know Him. Yes, with our minds, but even more that with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. All of us. That's the first and greatest command, right? To love Him, to know Him with all of ourselves. This is to be the aim of our lives as Christians. Listen to how the the prophet Jeremiah talks about this. How God through Jeremiah says this. In Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. When he says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and what? Knows me. Let him boast that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And how can we forget, of course, the Apostle Paul that talks about these same kinds of things, right? We thought about this last year in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 7 to 10, when Paul writes, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Why? That I might know him. Not just know about him, know him, enjoy him. And of course, how can we forget about the words of Jesus himself? We often ask this question, what is eternal life? Well, how does Jesus define eternal life? John 17, 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, a number of you are satisfied with knowing about the Lord, knowing about his work. And you, friend, if that's you. You are in danger of following this downward spiral as a result. If you are not into God for God, but only what God can do for you, or how maybe He can come alongside you as you're running your sort of life to kind of inspire you, well then, friend, you don't know the Lord Jesus. You don't understand Him, that He is the goal. See, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus is not a trinket. He is not a philosophy. He is not a coping mechanism. Jesus is not a crutch that we just lean on to get us through life. He's the Lord. He's the Lord. He has made Himself known so that He can be known and enjoyed and treasured. Not merely as a God, but as the God. The one true God. The one for whom we were made to know and enjoy and to glorify. As I've been thinking all week, how do I... How do I communicate this to you? This is so important and so often confusing to people in the sense that they just know a lot of things about God and they call themselves Christians and they sort of do Christian things and they think they're fine when they actually have no relational intimacy with God. They've never actually taken the time to know Him. This is so important. Throngs of people think their knowledge about the Lord deems them to be inside the good graces of the Lord. And they're wrong. Paul says, I'm willing to trade everything. I'm willing to trade it all to know Christ. To enjoy Christ. And I realize that a lot of us in the room are going, oh gosh, Nathan, I don't don't know if I'm willing to trade it all to know Jesus. So so here's a follow-up question to that. Do you want to? Do you want to know Him? Yeah, like yes, I don't do it right. I don't 
always, I, I know a lot of facts, not really pursuing him, but I, wa- I want to. That's, Nathan, that's, what I, that's why I'm here this morning, Nathan. Yes, good. But there's a lot of people, and maybe this is some of you, there's a lot of people that sort of want to keep the Lord just kind of over there. Kind of on, on retainer. Kind of ready to be used whenever we need Him. But don't get too close, Jesus. Don't get too close to kind of call me into stuff I don't want to do. Well, friends, if self is supreme, and you submit the Lord and His commands to your life, if He's just a footnote that you kind of know about and take His name, well then look what happens what comes next. Secondly, they then abandon the Lord. They then abandon the Lord. First off, they didn't know the Lord. Then secondly, as a result, they then abandon the Lord. Look at verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Baals would be the god of fertility there for the Canaanites. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. The Ashtaroth would have been the wife of Baal, the other god of fertility, really focusing there on sort of life, literally birthing life and life and farming stuff. That's what those gods were. They give themselves to that. They then abandon the Lord. So the absence of intimacy with the Lord, really knowing the Lord, then leads to abandoning the Lord. And that happens, guys, every single time. Without exception. That old saying is true. What the heart wants, it wants, right? And when the heart doesn't want the Lord for the Lord, it will want something else. People do not move, we should understand this, so important, people do not move from belief to unbelief. They move from belief in one thing to belief in something else. And so if you are not striving to know and enjoy the Lord, following Him, enjoying Him, then your heart will wander off, abandon the Lord in search of knowing something or someone else. And in this case, it meant the Israelites abandoning the Lord and serving or worshiping or bowing down to the false gods of the Canaanites, the ones that God warned them about, the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And notice there in the text, notice in the text that God, the God that they are abandoning is the God that delivered them from Egypt. Do you see that language, that inclusion of that language? Remember, guys, this is sort of language for the Old Testament gospel, as it were. They are abandoning the God that showed them grace and mercy in salvation from slavery. That's the one. They're making it clear. That's the one that they're abandoning. In modern terms, this would be sort of like saying, Restoration Church abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ and bowed down to the false idols of America. Sort of like what this is saying. But I want you to be really careful. We need to be careful about something when we're looking at this passage. Be very careful. This text is giving us the Lord's perspective of Israel. It's giving the Lord's perspective of Israel. Why is that important? It's really, really, really important. In the eyes of Israel, they didn't think they abandoned the Lord. They didn't think they did. Sure, they would have been aware of the fact that they were serving Baal, but we know from later prophets that they still are doing the prescribed sacrifices to the Lord. We see in just a moment that they still call out to Him when things get hard. 
In other words, it wasn't clear to the Israelites that they had, in fact, lost intimacy with God and abandoned him. But it was clear to the Lord. It was clear to him. And it's clear to us, too, right? When we read the text, it's clear to us. Why? Because we have the inspired interpretation of God to help us understand the events. So it's clear to God, clear to us, not clear to them. The fathers of these Israelites, they compromised on following the Lord. They half-heartedly obeyed him because at the end of the day, they just weren't really that into the Lord. And as a result, their sons and daughters lost knowledge or intimacy with him. And so they then abandon him. And as a result, they give themselves to other gods. But in the eyes of the Israelites, this was all very benign. All very nice. All very sort of comfortable, enjoyable even. This wasn't so bad. They were winning battles. At least it wasn't bad in the short run. But in the eyes of God, God saw their hearts. He knew that they had slidden into spiritual adultery. But the Israelites didn't see the problem. They didn't see the problem. Had you asked the average Jew on the street, we wandered up to them and said, hey, back then, hey, do you know the one true God? Do you know Him? I'm sure that Jew would have said something like, well, of course, He delivered our fathers from Egypt. I, I, I did this, the whole you know, sacrifice thing just last week. Of course, yes, I know Him. As He wandered off to the temple of Baal. And back to his home, to his unbelieving wife. Abandoning the Lord, friends, is clear in the Lord's perspective. But oftentimes it is not clear to us. Titus 1 talks about this predominance of people that will profess to know God, but they will deny Him by their works. In other words, God sees their denial, but the person only sees their profession. They have trouble seeing their perversion. So abandoning the Lord, friends, is oftentimes a dangerous, slow fade that may not result in an outright denial of God with our lips, but it does result in idolatry in our hearts. It's dangerous stuff. So we then ask the question, right? The next question comes, well, what does it look like? If I know God, if I don't know God, not pursuing intimacy with Him, I then abandon Him, but it may not be clear to me, but it is clear to God, maybe clear to His people. What would it then look like, maybe more practically? Third thing, they sold themselves back into slavery of lies. They sold themselves back into slavery of lies. So they... They don't know the Lord. That is, they don't pursue intimacy with Him. They then, as a result, abandon Him. And that abandonment is perceived, seen by them selling themselves into the slavery of lies. Now, I'm going to come back to the Lord's response to all this in a minute. But look down there at verse 17. It says, they, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon burned, they soon, they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. So they did not listen to their judges. Judges, by the way, we'll look at this in a moment, but look in verse 16. These are judges that God given them. They did not listen to their judges, for they whored, the idea there is prostituted after other gods and bowed down to them. So two things that show us what not knowing the Lord and then abandoning the Lord looks like. Two things. First, they don't listen to the authorities that God had given them. 
And secondly, instead, they sell themselves to the gods or the idols and listen to them. That's what we see there. Now, to be clear, guys, not listening here doesn't mean not hearing. I'm sure they heard all kinds of things from the authorities. So not listening there means not obeying. Look down there at verse 20. Look at the second half of verse 20. We'll read this in a little bit. But it says there, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. See, now you're seeing what it looks like. They are obeying Baal, not obeying God. Verse 4. Look at, look at chapter 3, verse 4. Again, we'll look at this more in a moment, but notice what it says there. God's going to test them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord. Verse 6. Down there, chapter 3, verse 6. This section concludes with evidence of their disobedience. That is to say, they're marrying unbelieving Canaanites. Which is what they were told not to do. Same thing we're told not to do even today. So not, uh, not knowing the Lord and then abandoning the Lord uh, involves first not listening or not obeying the Lord's authority, the Lord's authorities in the judges and His Word. And then secondly, it involves selling oneself into slavery. I'm getting that idea of slavery from whoring, prostituting. It involves selling oneself into slavery of another god or another idol. It's verse 17. And so this, the way that it would then look like for us then, would be for us to reject the authority of the Word and reject the authority of pastors that are trying to teach in accordance with the Word in place of them selling themselves into the slavery of the idols around us. That's what it would look like. Now, of course, the idols around us are legion, right? There are tons of those kinds of idols. I think we could boil down, though, the Baal and the Ashtaroth Uh, of our context, to the God of self. The God of self. A little g God or an idol is anything that tries to dismantle the ultimate allegiance, authority, and worth and goodness of God Himself. And our little g God, our idol, I think, is me. Self. Took a look back there at verse 12. Look back at verse 12. Easy to miss, but this is critical to understand for our application. Look at verse 12. It says, They abandoned the Lord who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods. What other gods? Well, the ones that are from among the gods of the people who were around them. Did you get that? So, in other words, they gave into the sinful temptation of the false gods that were around them. They didn't adopt the false Worship of Hinduism or Islam or Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses. Those, inventions, those religions had not even been invented yet. They're not adopting those. They're not looking to those. They're uh, adopting the false religion of those that were around them. They're conforming to the patterns of worship of Baal and Ashtoreth because that's who was there. And so the lesson for us is we need to be aware of the false worship that's around us. And clearly, the false worship, the idolatry that is around 21st century America is individualism. The teaching that says we are at the center. We determine meaning, purpose for ourselves. And anyone or anything that says that we need to limit our choices in any way on anything, limit those choices, they are committing heresy against the religion of individualism. To say no, we have to say no, to, or we can't tell them no about something. Now, to be clear, there's no institutional church of individualism. You can't show up 
at a church of the individual, not formally anyway. But this individualism, I think, is the Baalism of our day. That is the people who are around us. And therefore, we should be careful to study the ways that we might be tempted to not know the Lord and then abandon Him by not listening to Him as a good authority. And then secondly, prostituting or selling ourselves into the God of self. And we have to remember, as we saw in the Israelites, it's hard to see. It's hard. They, it was hard for them to see. And even with this sort of lack of formality of the God of self here, it's even more difficult to see. So we've already talked about cultivating the need to cultivate an intimacy with God. Knowing Him, enjoying Him, pursuing Him and His people. But let's now consider practically what it might look like to give ourselves to the bales of our day, to the God of our day, to the God of self today. So I, I think we, we've got to understand what it looks like. So the idol religion of self takes on as many forms as there are persons in our society, which makes it even more difficult to spot, right? In other words, Baalism, Mormonism, Islam, these are easy to spot. All right, yeah, they're going to that temple, therefore they're disobeyed. Got it. But that didn't stop, of course, the Israelites from seeing it and doing it, but it is easy for us to read here and see that they failed. The idol of self is harder. It doesn't have a uniform set of practices other than its law, here it is, the ultimate law of placing our personal desires above any other rival. That's why I use that language of supremacy of self. And so one way of fighting for joy, fighting for the glory of Christ, for His goodness, for His supremacy, and against, against abandoning Christ to follow self, one way of doing that, the one way we can help understand this world we live in and the peoples around us to see if we are conforming is to ask ourselves this question. And here it is. Am I willing to deny personal desires if they oppose the clear teaching of Christ? It's a good question to ask. If, if, if I'm getting like these Israelites, starting to conform to Baal, starting to conform to the idol of self, Am I willing to deny personal desires if they oppose the clear teaching of Christ? See, it's, it's easy to say that you'll not abandon Christ on the things you like about it, right? I'm sure that the Israelites, they would have told you that, yeah, God delivered us from Egypt. I believe that. I think that's true. In the same way, we might say, yeah, yeah, love Jesus, love forgiveness, love love, love heaven, love cross, love all that. Yes. The real test to see if you're actually submitting to Him as Lord and Savior and as good King is to see if you're willing to submit desires that you have that you'd like to have fulfilled, but you can't or you shouldn't because Jesus doesn't say we ought to. That's when you'll really start to see if you're following Him as Lord. And if you don't, if you're unwilling to deny personal likes or dislikes that go against the clear teaching of Christ, then you can be sure that you are doing what these Israelites did. You're giving yourself to the God that is around us, the God of self. Are you willing to deny personal desires if they oppose the clear teaching of the good King Jesus Christ? Or maybe to say that more positively, are you conforming your desires to Jesus? All of them. That's a question you can ask to make certain you're keeping yourself holy or set apart from the Baalism of 21st century America. And guys, don't forget this. Please don't forget this. This is the difficult task of preaching the Old Testament. Don't forget, first of all, Jesus. And second of all, don't forget that obedience is good. Jesus loves us. He's trying to order us. Same way I do with my kids. 
Don't put your finger in the light socket. Bad idea. No. No to light sockets, right? Right? That's what Jesus is trying to do in his word. It's good for us. It's good for us. Now, I realize that when I offer that question, some of you may be thinking, I'm just trying to covertly talk about sexual immorality, since that's the sort of popular one. But I'm not. I'm not. It, it could be any desire. Sexual immorality is certainly one of the main sort of little g gods or idols of our society. One of the main ones, for sure. It's talked about a lot. But that's only one personal desire that needs to be submitted to Christ. It's a popular one, not the only one. I think it's Sam Albury that says, Sam Albury, godly Christian man that struggles with same-sex desires. I think it's him that says that everybody in the church, all of us, should be familiar with submitting desires we'd like to have fulfilled and not, not submitting those desires to Christ. All of us should be familiar in the church, he says, with know, knowing what it's like to not do things we'd like to do. We should all, everybody in the church should be familiar with that. And so that's why I said earlier that our idols are legion. The God of self is sort of a big mechanism, but those idols underneath that are legion. So the religion of self or individualism could take the form of our not submitting our financial lifestyles to the Lord. It's a common one in the church and the God of self in America. Hugely common one. We might be willing to say, you know, like, yeah, yeah, I, I love Jesus. And so you know, if I give any money at all, let's say, to the church or to the work of the gospel, you know, we might say, yeah, I'll give my 10%, but the 90%, that's mine. Jesus doesn't get that. Not, 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 not healthy. People unwilling to make choices with their money that reflect the worth of Christ's kingdom over their own personal kingdom. Secondly, it could take the form of not submitting ourselves to the church. God's word is clear that believers should not forsake meeting together. Hebrews 10. Super clear about that. Yet there are plenty of people who, saw, who have sold themselves into the slavery of self by convincing themselves that the church is optional. Optional. As if it's a kind of service provider or luxury that we can participate in whenever, however we choose. But guys, that's not Jesus. That's clearly the calling card of the people that are around us. Sort of having us set the agenda for our worship. It could take the form of an idolatrized desire for personal comfort. I think we're all guilty of this one, right? I know I am. Whatever makes you most comfortable is the way that you choose to live your life. So instead of submitting your choices to Christ, you do whatever maximizes your own personal comfort, maximizes your likes, minimizes your dislikes. Maybe one way to do that, we sort of privatize our faith because we, you know, we gotta keep that personalized, those kinds of things. We don't wanna make it too difficult for ourselves, whatever the case may be. It could take the form of idolizing your career. Another one, popular one here in Washington, D.C., your decisions are based upon whether or not that choice will promote or hinder or handicap your career. Neglecting the weightier matters of Christ, you pursue career and just kind of add on Jesus when you can. Friends, the supremacy of self can take all kinds of forms. But in the end, it results in a form of prostitution towards that idol and away from the Lord. And remember, this oftentimes takes time, and it's not often easily seen. And, so, and, and this happens too amongst people that take the name of Christ and even do sort of Christian things. We've got to remember, guys, guys, don't forget this. We forget that Satan is known as first a deceiver, and he's also known as a servant of righteousness. 
So he appears as a servant of righteousness. He plays on our likes and our dislikes. He loves to give us those proverbial chocolate-baited hooks. He loves it. And he's even loved for us to bite down on those chocolate-baited hooks and sort of be caught by him and still take the name of Jesus. That'll help his cause out even more. If he can just get us to sell ourselves into the supremacy of our desires, never actually taking the time to submit ourselves to knowing and enjoying Christ. And so what happens as a result of this? What happens when we don't cultivate knowing the Lord and then abandoning the Lord to the slavery of those idols? What happens? Fourth thing, God's anger is kindled. God's anger is kindled. Look at verse 14. This is right after they've, we've learned that they've abandoned. Back up at verse 14. So, so as a result of them abandoning the Lord, serving these other idols, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn them, in other words, he said, I told you this was going to happen. told you to not do this. I told you this. And look what happens as a result. And they were in terrible distress. Slide down to verse 19. We'll come back to 16 in a minute. Slide down to verse 19. But whenever the judge died, so verse 16, God raises up judges for them in the midst of their distress. Okay, But look at verse 19. But whenever the judge died, they turned back, and were more corrupt than their fathers. This is that downward spiral we've been talking about. Going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. I will no longer drive out before any of the before them any of the nations that Joshua left them when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And so the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Sad, right? So the word kindled there means burn. We're, those of us, you ever made a fire before? Y'all done this before? Like, you get, you, you, what do you put in the fire to, to get it going, right? You kindling, put kindling in it. Burn, that's what that means, burn. So this anger here from God, it shouldn't surprise us, right? God's holy. They've affronted him, so he's burning in anger. So Israel has committed spiritual adultery against the Lord who had given them every good gift. Every good gift. He'd given them leaders. He'd given them his word. He'd given them his presence. He'd given them his promise of a land. He'd given them salvation from Egypt. He'd even warned them about their adultery. He had them memorize this song. Like, hey, you know, memorize this song. You're going to get it wrong just to warn you. They still abandon him and they still prostitute themselves to another God. Like a husband would burn with anger if his wife cheated on him. All the more. The God of the universe's anger is kindled. Because of spiritual adultery. It burns. But guys, it's also important to remember this anger is kindled not just because God's holy, but also because of His love for Israel. Remember Deuteronomy 7? So important. Remember 
Deuteronomy 7 talked about how he had set his love on Israel. He loved them and he called them to be a holy people, knowing that was the way to go. And so they forsook his love and they abandoned him for another. And so God's anger here should not only be seen as a result of their disobedience, he was also angry because the people he loved had abandoned him, the ones that he had loved. And I want you to notice what the Lord calls this spiritual adultery. So we've seen God's anger is real, God's anger is right, but look what he calls this spiritual adultery. Look in verse 11. See it? He calls it evil. Evil. We don't normally use words like that, strong words like that, to talk about Spiritual idolatry, but that's how the Lord sees it. Disobedient idolatry is evil in the sight of the Lord. And as a result of their evil, disobedient idolatry, the Lord's anger then leads him to punish Israel, right? And remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. His punishment is an expression of his love, right? So if God did not love his people, he wouldn't care. In other words, if he was unloving, he would have become uninvolved. But that's not what happened. Because he loves them, he punishes them. And we find that the way that he punishes them is by not driving out the enemies of his people. Remember before, he was going to, like, they were just going to win all the battles. But now, not going to happen. But I want you to notice why he doesn't drive out the enemies. This is important. Why this punishment? Was it just to be cruel? Was God just being really mean? No. Look at verse 22. He does it. To test them. Well, what was the test? Slide down to 3-4. Chapter 3, verse 4. We get more information about what the test was. Chapter 3, verse 4. The test was they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commands, commandments of the Lord. Same thing he says in verse 22. So at the end of the day, the Lord was going to leave these nations here to see if they'd actually love him by following him. Or would they leave him and follow other gods? Notice there's no in-between, one or the other. The Lord could have smoked Israel right there, right? Could have. He would have been justified to do it. Could have smoked them right there. We've seen it before, right? Earth opens up, down they go. Could have done that, right? It's not what he does. Or he could have taken his presence away from Israel. That would have been a huge thing. Remember, he warns of that to Moses back in uh, Exodus 34. And Moses, uh, all the golden calf in it, he's going to take his presence away. And Moses says, no, 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 we're not going to go unless your presence is with us. And so God doesn't take his presence away. He could have, but he doesn't. Now, eventually, way after this, he does. Back in Ezekiel, you'll see it. But for a long time, he doesn't take his presence away from them. He doesn't do either of those things. Instead, he keeps his presence with them, as we'll see in a moment. He even hears their prayers and delivers them at times. Later, we'll see in the book, in the Bible, that he gives them kings and he gives them prophets. He's not doing that to other nations. In other words, the justified anger of the Lord leads him to justifiably punish Israel for their disobedience, but he does it in such a way as to leave room for them to return. Isn't that great? To come back into his covenantal love. And as if this isn't amazing enough, it goes on like this, guys, for a really, really long time. I mean, a really long time. Generation after generation, Israel commits spiritual adultery. And generation after generation, the Lord gets angry. Generation after generation, he punishes them. But he always leaves room for them to come back. 
Guys, don't tell me that the God of the Old Testament is some monster. He's a good God, rightfully punishing his people, but wooing them still to come back. He is justifiably angry. God that justifiably punishes in such a way as to still leave room for prostitutes to re-enter his covenantal love. By the way, whole point of Hosea, right? And as if this wasn't enough, his love even goes beyond leaving room. Even in his anger, he shows mercy to his adulterous people. In the anger, still shows mercy to his adulterous people. Look down in verse 15 again. I've already read this once. Let me read it again. You're going to come, it's going to set context for 16. 15. When they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. Note, here comes the context. Terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Keeps going. I've already read 17. I'm going to drop down to 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. And on it goes. So verse 15, we read about how the Israelites would go out to war. But since the Lord was against them, as he warned them, he would be. They get distressed in the midst of the heat of that. And so what would the Lord do to his adulterous people in those moments when they're experiencing the heat? What does he do? What does he do? Does he stick his hand, his feet in their face and say, you get what you deserve? Is that what he does? No. In their distress, we learn. Look at verse 18. Don't miss that. In verse 18, God's people cry out and the Lord is moved by pity. Such a better word translation would have been compassion. He's moved by compassion. That's the word there. That word is often translated compassion or comfort. He's moved by comfort. He's moved by compassion. In the midst of the heat of all of this, he listens to their cries and he answers them because he's motivated by compassion. And what did those judges that he raised up? So then as a result of that, he sends them judges to deliver them from the enemies. He did the thing that he said that he wasn't going to do. In other words, he gave them mercy. They're getting stuff that they don't deserve. And so God is so full of compassion for his adulterous people, he can't help himself from raising up people to get them out of trouble. Amazing. This is is why we have the the book of Judges is called Judges. Right here. Because you're going to see all these judges down through the times. You're going to see next week you'll see Othniel. We already looked at him a little bit. Lion of God. Remember that guy? He had his girl, Anklet. Remember her? He's going to come back up. We're going to get Ehud, strange story of left-handed Ehud. You're going to hear about Ehud. He's a weird dude. Right? You're going to hear about Deborah. You're going to hear about Gideon. Some of you grew up in church. Like, Gideon was an awesome guy. Ah, I don't know. I don't know. Samson. Oh, Samson. Man, the rock. <laughs> Messed up dude, Samson. Right? But God uses these broken vessels in the midst of their difficulty and disobedience for his glory to still meet these people in their trouble even though they don't deserve it. And yet on the other side of these judges that he raises up, when they die, it just gets worse. It doesn't go back to where it was. It gets worse. Thus the downward spiral as the book goes along. And so there's the cycle, guys. Here it is. There's the, there's the cycle. You're going to see this all through the book. The cycle is going to start with disobedience. It moves to destruction. 
then to distress, them crying out, to delivery. And then they forget. Sorry, no D word. Sorry. Disobedience into destruction, to distress, to delivery, at which time they forget and it just gets worse. That's what Judges is doing. Such a pleasant story to come and listen to on Sunday mornings. But so good for us. So good for us. But through it all, God gets angry at them because He loved them. Not because He was wildly violent God, randomly spewing out His wrath on His people. No, it was because He was a loving husband of sorts to Israel and the Canaanites were wicked tempters. Canaanites, wicked tempters. And Israel was wickedly inclined to follow their temptations. And out of the holy love of God, He punishes them, but He doesn't leave them. He kept loving them, wooing them back over and over, showing them mercy time and again. They would follow Him for a while, only to forsake Him. And guys, that's the story of Judges. That's the story in large part of the Old Testament. And guess what? That's our story too. Are we so different than Israel? Has God not been gracious to us and offering us His words, His presence, His promises, His love? Has He not given us that? And yet, don't we often commit spiritual adultery by giving into the supremacy of self, doing what is right in our own eyes. So here's the invitation for us all. Everybody in this room, here's the invitation for us all. It is to agree with God that we all have not known Him, pursued Him, loved Him. And secondly, we agree that we've not sought to enjoy that intimate fellowship with Him. Sorry. Secondly, we then abandon Him by worshiping Him. By worshiping other desires, by worshiping other things. We don't know him, we then, we agree that we have then abandoned him. And thirdly, we agree that we have rightly kindled his anger. But for those of us that are repenting and believing, God has heard our cries. He's heard our cries of distress, he's heard our weeping, he has seen our sorrow of spiritual adultery for our spiritual adultery, and so he has raised up for us a judge. Oh, the greatest of all judges. Who is it? Jesus. What is every book in the Bible about? Jesus. Judges, Jesus, right? Judges, Jesus is the great judge. He's the true judge. All these sort of messed up, kind of weird judges that get it right and they get it wrong, they're all pointing to the time in which there would be one judge, one great judge that would deliver us all from our greatest enemy, our sin and ourselves. This is pointing us to Him. Jesus is the great judge. God, in our distress, for our sin, we are sorrowful for our sin. We then call out, God, forgive me. God, I'm in distress. God, I've made poor choices. Whatever it is. And we say, God, please deliver me. And God says, here's Jesus. A judge that can and will deliver you perfectly, unlike those other judges. Jesus lives that sinless life. Never commits a sin. Faithful all the way to the end. Takes the penalty That punishment that we read about in Israel, not on them. That's why they're getting all kinds of things that we do not. God does not punish his children today. He punishes Christ for us on the cross. That's why the cross is so important. If you're not a Christian, you're trying to figure out the Christian faith. That's why we have a strange execution symbol as the sign of our faith, because we believe we deserve punishment. You heard Vaughn say this so clearly a moment ago, as did Deborah. We, we, We deserve the punishment. Christ set on him. He takes the punishment and then we get his righteousness. We get that mercy that we see perfectly in Israel. 
And the, the death of Christ is so important because sin needs to die, right? And then it raises on the third day. Jesus raises on the third day. So those that repent and believe, they get that new life transferred to them. Righteousness comes to them. And so now when God sees us, he doesn't see spiritual adultural, uh, spiritually adulterous Nathan. He sees clean, spotless wife. That'd be a good time to say amen, right? I mean, such good news. Such good news. We could get so familiar with this story. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the time when Nathan says gospel. We've got to be careful. We can't forget this. We've got to hear this and say amen and hallelujah. This is what I need. I need a judge. I need a judge. I'm messed up. I need a judge every day, every moment of the day. I need a judge to deliver me from all of my messed upness. And we go back to him and find life in him, And he no longer sees us as that adultery. He sees us spotless clean. So how do we respond to that grace? We go right back to where we began this morning. Know him. Enjoy him. Pursue him for who he is. Not just for what he can do for you. Count all things as loss. Gain him. Know that he's the aim of your life. You fight off the gods that are around us here. Those idols we talked about. You surround yourself with others that are doing the same. Until you and we finally get home to true Canaan. Together, forever. And if you get it wrong, you remember, listen, Jesus was punished for you. You get back up. We'll help you up. Let's keep going. Let's just keep going. Keep your eyes on Jesus, our great judge. He's taking care of us. Walk, follow him. Just keep going. And they fall down, we pick you up again. We just keep following Jesus till we get home. And when we get there, all of those personal desires that you submitted to Christ and made life harder here, you're going to say, it was worth it all. It was worth it all. He's a good king. I'm terrible being a king myself he's a good king i'm gonna follow him even though it's hard i'm gonna follow him because he's a good king and i'm not i'm not gonna repeat this cycle i'm just following down disobedience to destruction into distress and even if i do i'm just gonna go right back to jesus my great deliverer and know that he's my hope i'm not my hope he's my hope he's my judge he's my deliverer and i'm gonna enjoy him forever and we're gonna do that together as a church family And we're going to offer a better story to a world around us that's suffering, going, where's the answers? And we say, we need to deliver, right? And they say, yeah, we need to deliver. Well, let me tell you about Jesus. And so, Jesus, we pray to you. We thank you that you are our judge. You are our deliverer. We agree that we have disobeyed. We agree, Father, that we've kindled your angle. We've gone after other idols. And we agree that Christ is Lord. Give us grace that we might see him and enjoy him forever. Repenting and believing in Jesus as our king forever and ever. Delighting in him and enjoying him. Give us help, God, as we make it home to our true and forever Canaan. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.